Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 198, One Against All. First, as always, I want to thank our newest patrons. Big thanks to Jonathan Solis for increasing his support, and a thank you to new patron, Stan. And with that, let's get into it. Last time, the First Balkan War finally came to an end with the signing of the Treaty of London. This finalized Bulgaria's border with the Ottomans, but left other key elements, like the borders with newly independent Albania, and crucially the borders between the Balkan allies, undecided. But more important than the ending of the war was the gradual solidifying of a kind of anti-Bulgarian coalition. Greece and Serbia signed a formal alliance with the support of Montenegro, while also getting informal indications of support from Romania and the Ottomans. On the whole, it's becoming clearer by the day that Bulgaria is now surrounded on all sides by states that are ready to make war to get the territory they want. Meanwhile, there are more and more indications that Bulgaria does not have real support from any of the great powers, especially the one Sofia has been counting on, Russia. As a result of all this, Prime Minister Geshov has resigned and been replaced by Danev. Lastly, violence and repression against Bulgarians in Macedonia is increasing as Serbia and Greece are attempting to solidify control of their newly conquered territories regardless of what the people there think. So, That's the situation heading into late May of 1913. But at this moment, even though the First Balkan War is officially over, the Bulgarian army and government are facing immense economic and social pressures. Basically, the pressure of maintaining a fully mobilized army, something that is very expensive and means nobody gets to go home. The generals know that they can't just sit around with this fully mobilized army forever, as the cost of just paying the soldiers, along again with the economic burdens of keeping those soldiers away from the workforce, are massive. In other words, for many in the Bulgarian government and army, who now believe that war with Greece and Serbia is basically inevitable, it makes sense for that war to come sooner the better. If you still believe there's a chance at a different outcome, you're looking at this ticking time bomb running at all moments of the day and wondering, you know, is there going to be time to find a peaceful resolution before Bulgaria is forced to either demobilize its army and weaken itself amidst all these potential enemies or go to war? And this was felt by the soldiers themselves, obviously. Less than a week after the signing of the Treaty of London, from May 23rd to 28th, five Bulgarian regiments experienced mutinies, fueled in part by anti-war activities by the narrow socialists and agrarians. No doubt military leaders knew that forcing the soldiers to just kind of sit around longer is only likely to bring more such actions, which themselves would further undermine discipline and morale. The American military attaché in Sofia wrote back to Washington of this moment that, quote, The discontent in the Bulgarian army is very much fanned by political discussions. 
all Bulgarians are politicians, and the soldiers are keen students of the negotiations that have take pl taken place with Serbia, Greece, and Russia. They also hold strong opinions as to whether the interests of the country have been well served by the government or the reverse. This spirit tends no doubt to make discipline difficult to maintain amongst the many who blame the government for the present situation. Discontent will, however, cease to exist when the men are called upon to fight against Serbia or Greece, as it does not diminish their strong patriotic feelings, end quote. Now, he uses Serbia instead of Serbia. That's a whole can of worms I don't want to really open here, but you get the picture. You know, the, the Bulgarian soldiers, a lot of them are quite political. They have strong opinions and things, but the feeling by many is that, you know, if they're called to fight, they will fight. But if they are not called to fight, there's no telling how they might behave. Now, the historian Hall notes that this is maybe a little bit optimistic, but the strength of political feelings in the army do present dangers. There were also more practical problems to emphasize in a book by, written by a Czech journalist who witnessed this war firsthand. He writes, quote, Harvest time approached and the Bulgarian soldier who, after what he had suffered and endured during the long months of winter and the spring at Chitalja and Bulair, had then, instead of returning home, been compelled to join the army on the western frontier, had had enough. One thing or the other, it was war or demobilization. But in any case, there must be an immediate decision, for uncertainty had become intolerable. This state of mind was general, and several officers told Mr. Boucher that what he repeated in the Times. If the question is not decided in a week, General Savov will no longer have an army. End quote. Put another way, by late May, Bulgaria was in a use-it-or-lose-it situation with its army. Speaking of James Boucher, uh, I should quickly explain who he is. If you've never been to Sofia, there's a metro station named after him. He is an Irish journalist who's been living in Sofia since 1892 and acted not just as a correspondent for the British newspaper The Times, but really is one of the most seasoned and respected journalists in the region. And at this moment... You know, he's become a major source of information for the West about what's happening. And, you know, you can get a feeling for how respected he you know, was in retrospect and how important his coverage is by the fact that, again, there's a metro station named after him, basically because that metro station goes where there's a street named after him. But still, he's important enough. Now, he wrote of the moment just following the First Balkan War, quote, the psychological moment seems not far off when the powers, if they are to avert the catastrophe of another Balkan war, must display some energy in the assertion of their authority and give evidence of their determination to maintain peace at all costs. The most dangerous feature of the situation is the Serbo-Bulgarian dispute. Whatever concessions Bulgaria may be induced to make in other directions, it is certain that she will never abandon her claims to the districts in Western Macedonia already assigned to her by the treaty with Serbia. On this point, the whole nation is unanimous, from the king to the humblest peasant. The districts in question are the most thoroughly Bulgarian portion of Macedonia and were recognized as such by the Turks. They were the scenes of the Bulgarian insurrection of 1903 and have sent thousands of volunteers to the Bulgarian army in the present war. It is felt that no Bulgarian government could hand over these regions to another nation without dishonor, and should Serbia persist in occupying them, an armed conflict will become inevitable. End quote. 
Now, Boucher's analysis is quite right here. At this point, the only possible way to avoid a war between the Balkan allies is for the great powers to step in and essentially force some conclusion to these disputes. But the most they did was to urge the Balkan states to demobilize a quarter of their armies. And this is a request that all of them completely ignored. In the meantime, Serbia severed rail connections with Bulgaria on the 30th, further indicating that war was likely. The next day, though, Serbia and Greece insisted that Russia should now arbitrate all conquered territory from the First Balkan War, while Bulgaria continued to insist that arbitration should stick to the agreed-upon treaties and only cover the contested areas. So, if that was confusing, in other words, Serbia and Greece are saying that Russia should have a free hand to decide exactly what should come out of the war, while you know Bulgaria also wants Russian arbitration, but within the agreed-upon terms of the previous treaties. So, while there is plenty of pressure for the Bulgarian army to simply attack Serbia and Greece, Prime Minister Danev still held out for two potential changes. One, that he might come to an agreement with the Greeks that would prevent them from potentially joining Serbia. And second, that Russia might still take Bulgaria's side in arbitration. In particular, as long as there was some glimmer of hope for that Russian aid, he felt there was no reason to attack. Then, on June the 1st, in what must have felt like a cruel joke by Mother Nature herself, a devastating earthquake, a 6.6 on the Richter scale, struck northern Bulgaria, leading to severe damage in Gorna Oryachovica, Velikotornovo, and Ljaskovets. But, of course, worse calamities were to come. Now, four days after that, earthquake, fighting broke out between Bulgarian and Serbian forces on the uh, Zlatovska River in western Macedonia, and this seems to have been similar to the outbreaks of fighting between Bulgarians and Greeks that also carried on for about eight days. So, yeah, essentially there's sporadic fighting already between Bulgarian and Greek and Serbian forces. And while all that was going on, the Bulgarian government held a ministerial council to decide what it should do. Here, General Savov made it clear that the army cannot maintain discipline for more than 10 days, but that he is also confident that Bulgaria can defeat Greece and Serbia together. Prime Minister Dana, for his part, told the council that, quote, the Serbs do not accept joint occupation and a condominium in Macedonia, or if they do not state that they will accept arbitration on the basis of the convention, we must declare war, end quote. In other words, again, Bulgaria's position, if Serbia doesn't agree to stick to their previous treaty, he felt that Bulgaria should indeed declare war. Now, ultimately, that council decided against declaring war, instead giving the Russians an ultimatum to announce what their arbitration decision would be within a week. Now, obviously, this greatly frustrated General Savov, who felt that this was much too long to wait. But it also infuriated the Russians. Their foreign minister responded by saying, quote, you are free. Do not expect anything from us and forget the existence of any of our agreements from 1902 until present. End quote. In other words, Russia was telling Bulgaria that the treaty they signed in 1902 was now worthless. This was a bombshell because that treaty promised Russian support in the case of a Romanian attack, and in general, it formed the basis of the Bulgarian assumption that Russia would support them. I can only imagine the chill that must have run down Danov's spine on reading this response. 
What should be clear now and what should have been clear for months is that Russia has betrayed Bulgaria, showing that the treaty they signed on which Bulgaria had depended so much basically could be thrown out the moment the Russians decided they didn't feel like uh, it was convenient anymore. Stephen Constant summarizes the dynamic well, writing, quote, The Russian foreign minister's rancor was characteristic of the attitude of Russian statesmen and diplomats towards the young Slav states of southeastern Europe. The tone had been set by Alexander III. It was an assumption of paternalism towards the young Slav brothers. Whenever the latter refused to act the role which Russia had quite irrationally assigned to them, they were taxed with ingratitude. Like any parent, Russia could turn nasty at what she chose to see as filial ingratitude, end quote. Still, despite this response, the Russians did agree to arbitrate a few days later, inviting the Serbian and Bulgarian prime ministers to St. Petersburg. When this news broke, General Savov requested permission from Tsar Ferdinand to engage in what he termed a limited offensive against the Serbs, which he claimed would restore the army's morale. Essentially, he felt that waiting for those negotiations to conclude might well leave Bulgaria without a functioning army at all. To help strengthen the hand of the war party in Bulgaria, Savov and Ferdinand worked together to cut the rail line that the prime minister needed to get to Varna to board a ship to Russia. Now, Savov's confidence in victory was expressed when he said, quote, Salonika will be captured within nine hours and Belgrade within five days. The Greeks are an army of peddlers and traitors, and the Serbs were soundly defeated back in 1885. So, the war party was confident, and that's why they were you know, playing hardball, literally physically preventing the prime minister from reaching Russia to negotiate some arbitration. So, it now seemed that war might come at any moment. Then, the Tikvish region in central Macedonia exploded. In response to brutal Serbian actions against anyone or anything associated with Bulgaria there, the Vemaro had been planning an uprising against them. It's ironic, after leading so many uprisings against the Ottomans and then actually helping the Serbs defeat them and kick them out, the Macedonian revolutionaries now saw no other choice but to fight those who so recently were their liberators. The Bulgarian army knew this uprising was imminent and had found small ways to support it where it could. So, while the uprising began on the 15th, the night of the 16th, it finally happened. The Bulgarian army launched a series of surprise attacks on Serbian and Greek positions all along the front. General Savas ordered the troops stated, quote, so that we do not ignore the Serbian attacks, which would reflect badly on our army's morale, and to press the enemy further, I am ordering you to attack the enemy by the most energetic means along the entire line, without completely disclosing your strength, and without becoming involved in a prolonged battle. End quote. Prime Minister Danov rushed back to Sofia when he heard the news, claiming to have been utterly shocked by it. The cabinet quickly convened and ordered General Savov to stop the attack, while the foreign ministry frantically sent telegrams to Belgrade and Athens claiming Bulgaria had peaceful intentions. However, a verbal order from Tsar Ferdinand counteracted the command to stop, leaving Savov wondering who he should listen to, the Tsar or the cabinet. He ultimately listened to the cabinet, resulting in the Tsar sacking him and replacing him with General Dmitriev. 
In this moment, as Marshall McDermott put it, quote, Thus, Bulgaria ceased to be the injured party, cheated by her own allies, and assumed the role of a treacherous aggressor. Because, well, importantly, Bulgaria never declared war, it just sort of attacked Serbia and Greece. Although, again, to be fair, there had already been sporadic fighting between them. Now, French diplomats speculated that Serbia had been quite eager for a war to happen, but specifically wanted Bulgaria to be the one to attack because it would create precisely this impression in public opinion, that Bulgaria was the one at fault, that Bulgaria was the aggressor. So, while no longer prime minister, Ivan Geshov clearly saw how bad this situation could get, writing in a letter, quote, with five enemies on our borders, to consider revenge would be the ultimate foolishness and treachery, especially with the question of Thrace now being decided. End quote. Now, to this day, there's been speculation on who exactly gave the order to attack, the one that essentially began the Second Balkan War. Most historians agree that it was probably a verbal order given by Tsar Ferdinand, though we'll probably never know for certain. It does seem clear that the Danov government did not approve, and so this attack was essentially a collaboration between the Tsar and the army. Some also speculate that Ferdinand gave the orders out of fear that if he didn't, he would be assassinated, which wasn't an entirely unreasonable fear. Remember, the, the king of Greece had just recently been assassinated, though for very different reasons. Now, Hall argues that it was probably General Savov who actually persuaded Ferdinand to order the attack, not the other way around, though General Savov also decided to side with the cabinet and stop the attack. It's messy. Now, we'll get into the military side of this war in the next episode, but for now, I want to spend the remainder of this episode understanding the state of the belligerents, kind of where everyone is at this moment. First, what was the state of the Bulgarian army? For one, it was understandably low on ammunition. You'll recall that the country had only ever been prepared for a short but intense war against the Ottomans. And so now, after a somewhat protracted war, the stocks of ammunition and other war materiel were dangerously low at the beginning of a brand new conflict. Next, the Bulgarian army had a dangerous deficit of lower level and non-commissioned officers, NCOs. Now, if you don't know, commissioned officers are people who have gone to military academies and have never served as sort of regular soldiers. You know, their entire time in the military has been as officers. They're the ones that generally would rank, you know, rise to the ranks of generals and things like this. NCOs begin as basic enlisted men and are promoted up from there. So usually they will enter as a private and then be viewed as officer material and come up as an NCO, but they generally can't rise as high in the army as commissioned officers can. But why this is important is that the NCOs are often referred to as the glue of the army. They're the ones who have an understanding of some military theory. You know, usually they've received some level of education uh, as officers. So you know, they understand the perspectives of those higher level commissioned officers, but they've also been enlisted men. And so they also understand the realities on the ground. Thus, they serve an important function as a tie between the, you know, everyday soldiers and those higher up, you know, generals and such running the army. So because Bulgaria has lost so many of its experienced NCOs in recent months, 
the army at this point has about half the number of it, it needs, which is a deficit of around 7,600. This is a big problem. You know, replacements have been quickly promoted to fill the gaps, but obviously these men lack the experience of their predecessors, and thus the Bulgarian army has become quite a bit less effective and has worse morale. Otherwise, even after drafting 60,000 men from newly conquered territories, men who were now basically cannon fodder because of course there's been no time to train them, even with these 60,000 men, the Bulgarian army now is smaller than it had been at the beginning of the First Balkan War nine months earlier. At the beginning of the Second Balkan War, nearly all of Bulgaria's armies are facing Greece and the Serbs. The new Ottoman frontier is thinly manned, while the border with Romania is basically unguarded. Everything is built on the assumption that Romania and the Ottomans will not get involved. That said, facing Serbia and Greece, Bulgaria does have the advantage of internal lines of communication, so logistics and communication are much simpler for them than for their former allies. Now, the Bulgarian strategy is to be aggressive and defeat the enemy in detail. This means basically, instead of kind of facing the combined might of Serbia and Greece at once, to rush forward and defeat one army before rerouting resources to defeat the other. Now, the Serbian army, for its part, is 18% smaller than it had been nine months earlier. So, like the Bulgarian army, its casualties of the First Balkan War means that it is shrunk somewhat. Now, the Serbs face the challenge of managing the Tikvish uprising, as well as various smaller Albanian uprisings, as well as generally administering, controlling, defending a vast amount of newly conquered territory. Now, with all that on their plate, the Serbs felt that they really had no choice but to fight defensively for now, focusing on simply holding newly acquired territory in Macedonia. An order from Serbian high command to their troops about a week before the outbreak of war stated, quote, Our troops must be on constant guard, especially at night, and prepared not to not only deflect any Bulgarian attack, but to also go over on the attack themselves to punish the Bulgarians for their aggression and to mercilessly pursue them, end quote. Again, showing that the, the Serbs were not stupid. They knew a Bulgarian attack was likely. But while the Serbs hoped to merely defend against a strong Bulgarian attack, they did hope the Greeks would stand ready to viciously attack the Bulgarian flanks. However, like the Serbs, the Greeks were now more focused on defending their gains, especially Thessaloniki. Indeed, the Serbs and Greeks could afford to focus on defense because, well, they had all the newly acquired territory between the Bulgarian army and their heartland. You know, they could lose a lot of territory and Athens and Belgrade would not be threatened. By contrast, Sofia was only about 55 kilometers away from the new Serbian border, the same danger Bulgaria faced facing Serbia back in 1885. Its capital is just very vulnerable. So, while Serbian Greek plan, the Serbian Greek plan for now is to focus on initially sort of absorbing Bulgarian attacks before switching over to a counterattack, meanwhile, they expected the Romanians would get involved and further stretch Bulgarian forces. Now, the Bulgarian army also wasn't stupid, and they knew there was a possibility of Romanian intervention. But they believed Bucharest would need at least 12 days to mobilize and prepare, and they basically thought that that would be enough time for them to defeat Serbia and Greece. So it didn't really matter. They would be able to, you know, change tack, go over and fight the Romanians should it come to that. 
But, you know, Romania was a danger. Once mobilized, they would have an army even larger than that of Bulgaria's, around 418,000 compared to the 360,000 that Bulgaria could field at this time. The Romanians also had high quality and modern weapons, but Romania's biggest advantage and disadvantage was experience. As I've mentioned, they haven't fought a real war since 1878, which means they lack real experience. But they also weren't exhausted and depleted as all the other Balkan states were. Now, of course, the Romanian numbers don't really matter that much because, well, the number of soldiers you have isn't that important when you're facing virtually unmanned borders. You know, you don't need a massive army to invade undefended territory. Now, lastly, there's the Montenegrins. Well, they had no particular beef with Bulgaria. They still sent about 13,000 men to aid the Serbs in an attempt to convince Belgrade to be grateful and hand over a portion of the Sanjak of Novi Bazar that Montenegro had wanted from the beginning. Now, as far as Bulgarian society went, it was pretty strongly in favor of a new war. While the Danov government clearly saw that war could bring potential disaster and should be avoided at all costs, newspapers and other organizations in Bulgaria loudly proclaimed that any compromise on Macedonia was treason. Many even calling for Danev's assassination if such a thing were to happen. Other Balkan states also felt a similar level of enthusiasm, with one chapter in the book The Wars of Yesterday noting how Romanians were packing cafes to sing patriotic songs and pretending that southern Dobruja, quote, the existence of which had been largely ignored by the general population only a few months before, suddenly became the most Romanian place in all of Romania, and the Bulgarians, Romania's all-time enemy, end quote. And so that's where we'll conclude this episode. Attempts at finding a peaceful resolution to this conflict seem to have all failed, with Russia in particular utterly failing in its appointed role as arbiter and basically taking any request to please be an arbiter and get along with it with uh, utter indignation. Bulgaria has now attacked Greece and Serbia with the utmost optimism, but also great fear. Optimism that their former allies are pushovers who will be easily defeated, but also fear that any delays will lead to the evaporation of Bulgaria's own army. So now, the die is cast. An uprising has broken out in Macedonia and Bulgarians are attacking all along the line. Next time, we'll see whether that optimism is warranted as the Second Balkan War gets underway. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by the talented Teddy Raven. As always, you can check out more information at bghistorypodcast.com and I will catch you in the next one.